Today we're having a discussion with James Conant, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Chicago and Humboldt Professor at the Research Collegium in Leipzig called Fagi, and Professor Cora Diamond, Professor Emerita at the University of Virginia. Welcome, both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, introducing the two of you is in some ways rather hard. Many contemporary philosophers are often introduced by a this is Professor X who works in the field of Y. But if one looks at your work, such an introduction seems out of place. Both of you have worked on several various topics, such as the philosophy of language, of mind, of ethics, aesthetics, history of analytic philosophy, political philosophy, logic, and you have written about a great number of very different philosophers. So the first question I want to ask the both of you, why this is so? What comes with this seemingly intentional effort to be broad in one's philosophical interest? I don't know that I would speak of it as an intentional effort to be broad, um, but one finds oneself as a philosopher reading things, studying things, and then teaching things. And teaching, among other things, gets one into subjects which one might not have had any other particular interest in. And then one tries to work out a way of thinking about the things one is teaching, and um, things go from there. And then one's interests develop. Um, it's difficult to say. How did they come to be so broad? I don't know. <laughs> in fact, they've narrowed down from many of the things that I, at one time, thought I was more interested in. Well, it's interesting that the premise of the question is that um, being interested in, in philosophy in its entirety requires explanation. <laughs> that, that, is, that is the form of deviance and that um, burrowing into one corner of it and, um, and not branching out um, should be the, the normal proper path. It doesn't seem to me sociologically wrong, but it seems worth thematizing um, that feature of the question. So, I mean, I, if I had to say what I was interested in, I would say I was interested in philosophy. I, I, I wouldn't, so um, it wouldn't strike me that I was extraordinarily promiscuous and divided and scattered, but that I'm interested in one thing. Um, I guess I also think that in order to do philosophy well, um, that's how one needs to do it. That's how it's seemed to me for various reasons that one's bound to have an extremely partial and provincial conception of even of the problems in one area of philosophy. If one does it um, in such a way that one doesn't see how the same problems come up in different guises in other areas. Yeah. Right. Can I add something to that, which is that um, of all the people who've taught me at various times, perhaps the most important one in terms of affecting how I approach philosophy is Paul Bryce. And one of the things that Paul was known for was specifically insisting that trying to get at an issue in philosophy without being aware of its possible ramifications in other regions of philosophy was a big mistake. So, anyway. Paul Grice has a remark I quite like where he says, philosophy, like virtue, is one. <laughs> um, but um, a, a very influential teacher in me was Hilary Putnam. And, um, and when I was young, he also encouraged me to take courses or 
branch out into areas of philosophy that it's not so much that I thought I shouldn't do, but I was just afraid of. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, he, and he encouraged me to um, to think of it as belonging to the education of the philosopher that one knows one's way about the whole subject. And I'm grateful to him for that. Yeah. So this seems to entail, in a sense, that it becomes very difficult to separate different philosophical topics from another, which in turn makes the institutional borders between different forms of philosophy like epistemology, ethics, logic, aesthetics, philosophy of language, and so on and so forth, uh, rather ad hoc or um, doesn't seem to be suitable to describe your kinds of works. Uh, Would you say that all philosophical issues are intertwined in some ways or another? That's a big claim. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I'm very willing to see how... How they spread, how one spreads into another, I don't know. Um, I, I don't know whether if you look at some of the issues in the ways people do philosophy of physics, I'm not sure how, how much they can narrow themselves down to just the kinds of philosophy of physics they want to do. I just don't know. So I can't talk, I can't respond to that. I find things do branch out, yeah. but I don't know. But I can generalize. Yeah. Well, I, I guess what I do think, I mean, this is kind of turning your question inside out, but um, I guess what I do think is there's something misguided about the individuation of, it, of something that one might want to call areas of philosophy into subject matter. Um, I, I, I mean, if so far as there's an assumption behind that, something like this subject matter has its own specific problems that have their own specific character. Knowledge has its problems. Physics has its problems. Ethics has its problems. And, and then, of course, the division of subject matters itself is fairly... The idea of physics is one thing and knowledge is another. Sorry, strike one is slightly head-scratching, I think. But, but, um, but, um, but, um, but that, that seems to me wrong. I mean, I think philosophical problems, you know, if one wanted to individuate them at all, would be best individuated by their form and not their matter. And then the different things we call areas, I think, are extremely heterogeneous in character. I think something as big as physics or ethics involves problems of all sorts of different sorts, some of which have something to do with the philosophy of language, and some of which have something to do with the philosophy of perception, and some of which have to do with the philosophy of mathematics and so forth. <laughs> and it's not, it's, it's anything, is eno- when the subject matter is enormous, as moral thought or... Um, or, or you know what physicists do, that I think it, it it there isn't it sort of impinges in all kinds of different ways and all kinds of problems that that are classified as belonging to other areas of philosophy. But but I guess what I do think is 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 the kind of institutionalization of knowledge into self-contained subspecialties that have their own autonomous topics, subject matters, forms of method solving, and so forth suits certain areas of inquiry very well. Including actually physics and the natural scientists. Yeah. Now, I think they fit the humanities much less well. And I think it's something like a contradiction in terms for philosophy to try to sort of fit itself into the model of that conception of a discipline. I think that's exactly what philosophy is not. I think philosophy is always concerned with questions where the part of the question is what is the question? And is it well posed, and how can it be clarified? That is, it's always struggling 
with questions that precisely aren't perfectly disciplinarily locatable in the forms of solutions and methods are already predetermined. Insofar as that was the case, the problems that philosophy would be concerned with, I think, would no longer be philosophical problems. And so I think if philosophy as a discipline could really just fit into this model of how it should be subdivided and specialized, I do think to some extent it would be a form of suicide. <laughs> philosophy put itself out of its existence trying to fit into a model of inquiry which um, is completely contradicts its nature, I think. Uh, this makes me think about uh, one of the topics that you, Cora, have been working on and indeed talked about yesterday here at the Center, namely truth in ethics. And um, this is also, as I understand it, going to be part of your forthcoming book, Reading Wittgenstein with Anscombe, Going on to Ethics, published by Harvard University Press. And one of the thoughts that you investigate there is the idea that there are moments where we can learn to see that what might have had the appearance of a conflict between two completing views, in scare quotes, I take it, on an ethical matter is not really a genuine conflict of a normal sort. And this is also, I take it, um, one of the positions... I, I take it that this means that one of the positions really isn't a position after all. Indeed, you argue that there are moments in ethics where one can come to see not only that one of the positions is mistaken in the sense of being ill-thought or ill-argued, but that the position itself builds on a thinking that has gone off the rails, as you say. Mm -hmm. Now, this seems to me to lead us to a position where there are more or less logical errors, or similar to logical errors, again, perhaps in scare quotes, in ethics, and that one may come to see that a supposed view does not hold together at all, in a way that seems us to lead us to a form of ethical impossibility that has similarities with logical impossibilities. Can you see or elaborate on these um, eventual similarities and differences, differences between the ethical and the logical must? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's, it's a, that's a great question um, to try to, to get oneself to. Um, I think one of the difficulties there is ethical and logical must and the kinds of issue where it's the, what we were coming up with before um, in what um, Jim was saying about um, looking at the question and seeing mm. a question falling apart, which is a logical issue, but it's a logical issue which comes up in ethics. Mm. And one, I think, good example of a connection between a logical approach and, and seeing it in ethics is an example that did come up very briefly yesterday, which is Philippa Foote's um, criticism of utilitarianism, which um, she just, it's part of her work in ethics, and I don't think anybody would say she's influenced by the Tractatus there. Mm. But I think if you actually look at what's going on in the characteristic kind of um, criticism that you get of logical goings wrong in the Tractatus, of failing to mean anything by your words. Mm. Um, this is exactly what Philippa Foote is doing in that essay. She's trying to show that when we are drawn into certain ways of thinking and ethics, notably cons forms of consequentialism, forms of utilitarianism, there's a kind of way in which what we are up to resembles the kind of thing that comes up 
in the Tractatus Wittgenstein's claim that we have failed to give a meaning to anything that we're saying, and this comes up in a discussion which is basically logico-philosophical. I don't know exactly what you want to call it, but it's a lot—it's a logical criticism when you see it mm. in context in the Tractatus, but then you see something which is really a quite parallel sort of criticism <coughs> of what's, the, what's going on in... Um, in ethics, when we try to make use of the ideas, when we know that um, we know what it is for the things to work out well for somebody, somebody seemed to be in some danger, and then the state of affairs appeared to be better than we at first took it to be, and so we seem to have mm. an idea of a better state of affairs, and then <coughs> we try to take that notion of a state of affairs and whether one state of affairs is better than another, and then we try to make it a sort of tool in ethical theorizing, and it may not be obvious to us that mm. we have failed, <coughs> we failed to say anything at all. This isn't a contradiction, because it's, it doesn't have enough content to be a contradiction. We're not mm. saying one thing and saying the opposite, but we are trying to say something, and there's a lot, what I'm calling, as it were, imitating the tractatus, as it were, a logical, philosophical kind of criticism of it, and not in the kinds of contexts that Wittgenstein is specifically concerned with, but in, in, a, an, in an ethical context which is um, very central in modern ethical theorizing. Mm. Thank you so much. I mean, um, a follow-up question here now comes to this. Um, but I didn't answer your question. No. I sort of changed <laughs> it I like better, but there we are. Um, I take it that, I mean... There seems to be two things involved here. Uh, one is that when I come to see that my view doesn't hold together, that, yeah. that I have failed to mean something with yeah. my words, uh, and that, that my position comes apart. It seems to be, to be another thing to say that your position doesn't hold together. Your words are coming apart. Um, I mean, what would it mean to address uh, an opponent or a person thinking that they're holding in a different view, or the opposing view? with such forms of criticism? Well, I think the story there, one thing it goes back to, is Barclay saying, you think you mean something when you talk about substance, or material substance. Do you mean this? Well, that's not going to work. Do you mean this other thing? That also mm. is not going to work. Here's something else you might mean. Try that one on. Is that what you mean? I think this is a technique which is, present in Berkeley, it's present in Frege when he talks about um, formal views of arithmetic um, and, uh, and empiricist accounts of arithmetic. Do you, do you mean this? Do you mean that? It's not going to work. One plus one is two in 1870. You know, sort of, what are we talking about like that? Do you want to say that? Mm -hmm. um, so you have off the, what you might call the offering um, response do you mean this? Do you mean that? This isn't going to work for you. Um, I think the structure of Anscombe on the first person, hmm. um, it's, do you want to think of it as a name? Well, that's not going to work. Do you think of it as a demonstrative pronoun? Well, it's not going to be like a demonstrative pronoun in the kinds of ways you might want. So in many of these cases, it's not that you're saying what you mean isn't making sense or something like that. You can't get away with what, you're, what you mean. But it's 
an attempt that I think interestingly can be found in, in Barclay mm. to try to set out various kinds of things that you might, as it were, try to mean by your words and try to show the person that, you know, he or she does not mean the first one. That, that doesn't seem really to correspond to what the person wants. And you keep going with that. And that can't be, that can't be conclusive. And I think that it fails in some cases. I think Anscombe's criticism of flu misses that he does, he does mean something. She mm. wants to say he doesn't. But it seems to me that if you try to see what he is doing... Um, she didn't like flu very much, and she gave up rather, <laughs> rather, rather too early on this. But um, anyway, I think this is an interesting kind of technique, and it can't. And I'm suggesting it cannot be conclusive. Right. Uh, the word "conclusive" is a bit interesting because I've sometimes find your text difficult. Not in the sense that they are technically challenging, or you use uh, obscure language. You're writing very beautiful and rather straightforward English prose. But there is, I often get the sense that you leave something for me to do, that you don't end with a conclusion that is common today, that in this paper I've argued such and such, and these are my reasons, and now I hold the position X. But you end in a much more open way. Is that intentional of you? Or does Um, it come with a technique, as it were? (laughs) It's not... um, It's... It may in some cases simply be that what I'm doing, I don't even see as wanting to go further Mm -hmm. myself. Um, In some cases, I think I I would try to draw a conclusion. Um, The paper that I recently wrote on um, Bernard Williams' essay, The Human Prejudice, um, what I would want to say there is that um, it's been subjected to um, criticism by um, Jeff McMahon and Peter Singer, and it seems to me I, I bring out. So I'm, I'm not mm. making a, a sort of um, con- conclusive sort of um, expression there that um, they miss what mm. is there, and that um, Williams's view is not is not sub- subject to the kinds of criticism they want to bring. That's my conclusion. Right. So sometimes, at any rate, yeah, I do <laughs> want to make conclusions. I think, especially perhaps. Um, in connection with people who annoy me greatly as philosophers, <laughs> um, I may wish to be more um, drawing a con- to draw more of a conclusion, yeah. or hopefully um, to put the reader into a position to draw her own conclusions. Then, mm. I mean, you were both. I mean, you were both noting a similarity and asking for a difference. <laughs> there, there, there seemed to be something that. Um, that moral philosophy and what you were calling logic um, have in common in working with um, um, concerns where one thinks the person one's arguing with is confused in certain ways. Or as Cora put it, their thought has gone off the rails. Um, um, on the other hand, um, you're wondering whether there was a difference or whether um, b- between these cases or whether they're just, you know, it's just the same thing. Um, in two areas, and I mean, one thing to note is I think that question is as old as philosophy. Um, and it's, it's been with us and um, troubling us from the very beginning. I mean, it's notable that Plato's or Socrates' interlocutors are sometimes talking about what is knowledge, and they're sometimes talking about what is virtue. They're sometimes talking about, you know, 
the unity of the proposition and what holds the parts together. And they're sometimes talking about, you know, you know, whether there is such a thing as justice um, or goodness. And um, so on the one hand, they move between those topics and there are certainly similarities. One feels that, you know, Socrates' interlocutors are brought to points where they're supposed to meant to see that they can't make sense of what they're saying. Um, and at the same time, um, one also has the sense that um, there is a difference between, as Aristotle classified this distinction, worrying about this just uh, uh, around the corner from when those dialogues first happened, um, between theoretical and practical philosophy. So, um, so, I mean, certainly there are parallels here. I mean, I do think one difference is something having to do with the character of certain confusions that are particular to the practical case. Um, I mean, if someone wants to be a good person or wants to be a devout Jew or make certain New Year's resolutions and they keep talking about them and they explain to you it's the most important thing in their life and this is what they most care about and this is really what they're going to do. But nothing, ha nothing else changes. They just um, endlessly reflect on the importance of acting or doing or living a certain way. But the only sense in which they live that way is they talk about the importance of it. Then one feels that, you know, here's a form of confusion. has a slightly different character than just sometimes thinking or saying P and sometimes thinking or saying not P. Um, there's, a, there's some kind of... Um, illusion of thought that's specifically practical in um, taking oneself to be thinking in a way that's directed at something that's supposed to be a practical concern but has no practical efficacy or realization. So, I mean, I do think there's a, a kind of genus of confusion or to go back to an ancient word, sophistry, or, um, or um, that philosophy's always been concerned, but I do think there are different species of that worth distinguishing. And, and so that's not that um, what illusion in the ethical or confusion in the ethical case looks like is always just a species of the genus, logical contradiction and confusion. I, I don't think Cora ever meant to say that either. Um, and then that also allows for something else, which I think is connected with her point about Philip Afoot and utilitarianism, which is a specific kind of confusion and that seems quite endemic to modern philosophy. Uh, one would have to wonder exactly when it starts, I suspect, sometime in the 18th century, but is all over analytic philosophy, which is taking a certain form of theoretical reasoning as the model of what practical thought is or ethical thought is. So, I mean, one of the things about utilitarianism that she was talking about and its attractions is that what it wants you to be able to do is be given a bunch of initial conditions and a bunch of forms of reasoning and be able to plug certain things, and then be able to deduce from a certain conception of what ought to be the case, what one ought to do, so that um, so that you get a fully directive conception of ethics in which all of the reasoning is completely independent of any shaping your character or any way of living or any sort of deeper connection between what you might call practical or ethical thought and the person. And it just yields the, it's, you know, all ethics has, is in this sense, the form of public policy reasoning. It gives you the conclusion, 
you need to arrange this state of affairs. These are the most efficient means. And then we can just sort of try to implement them. Um, so that the character of how one lives or the character of what kind of person one is seems completely external to the question of what it is to bring about the good. And indeed, the very form of the reasoning is completely independent of anything I think was traditionally conceived of as ethical or even more broadly practical thought. And so, I mean, I think that's not a much more specific kind of illusion or sophistry that enters modern philosophy, which is that um, the kind of intellectual exercise which is appropriate to theoretical or merely logical thought itself already fully specifies the form of practical or ethical thought. I just wanted to um, take it that an extremely good example of this is the contemporary writings on so-called effective altruism, where the idea is that you should be arranging your life. For example, you should be a Wall Street, um, you know, making doing all sorts of trading on the on Wall Street and so on, so you can then effectively produce more malaria-preventing nets and thus do most um, to bring about good. And this is totally, this is very, very strikingly, totally separated from anything about what it is to live a human life. Mm. Very good. Um, this brings me a bit to <clears throat> to the paper that you're presenting at our center today, Jim, uh, about Wittgenstein and Socrates. And one of the points you're making is that both Wittgenstein and Socrates, uh, think of philosophy not as a body of doctrines, but as a way of life. Now, philosophy as a way of life is a dangerous phrase. It might might sound both intriguing and, how should I put it, um, somewhat juvenile, you know? Uh, that is, one might think of it in terms of a quest for a philosophizing that is grounded in real, often personal concerns, but it may also evoke images of pretentiousness and contemptuous attitudes to other people and philosophers who do not practice their trade in that way. Now, what do you mean when you talk about philosophy as a way of life, and how do you yourself stand in relation to that? Well, even though I'm about to give this paper today, um, I don't remember it that well. I haven't read it lately. <laughs> but I mean, I do think any words here are, as, you know, if one starts to um, fetishize them, are apt to um, lead to more misunderstanding than understanding. If a way of life is supposed to be some general concept, um, which we fully understand and which just takes instances, all of which we understand, I don't know what the other instances are supposed to be, um, um, uh, um, whether they're supposed to be religious or cultural or athletic. And then one thinks philosophy is just a special, it's just one of those, one way of life among others, and I think that's already misunderstanding perhaps one that I've invited but um but 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 um I mean the, the thought I was after it seems to me and, and and the word personal seems to me even more catastrophic mm-hmm. in that respect I think I do have a little bit about this in the paper towards the end as I recall um I mean the word personal does invite the idea it has to do you know my personal problems are the problems that are precisely not yours course <laughs> and, and they can be specified in a certain kind of a way um, as as sort of independently of what's of larger general concern and um, 
And so, I mean, I, I think, you know, it's, it's easy to put it in such a way that we already have a clear conception of what philosophy is as something impersonal and doesn't concern our life. And it's just a subject matter we do from nine to five and we know what it is to leave it behind. And then the personal is what we do when we leave the office involves us specifically. And then if I'm ready to say, no, it's not the first, it's the second, or even <laughs> it's both, um, those strike me as, you know, hopeless, you know, um, conceptions of the matter, not what I was advocating. But what I do think is is that, you know, philosophy for Socrates, things, I think this is in a way incredibly obvious, but it's interesting that it can seem like a, such a provocative and annoying thing to say, right? Um, is um, not independent. You know, their conception of what it is for them to be concerned. Philosophy is not independent of their conception of their lives and how they live. Um, so, um, but um, getting clear what kind of unity their life, their conception of living and their philosophy concern is not a matter of having a conception of two things and trying to exchange one for the other or saying, you know, it involves 50% of each. Um, <laughs> you know, as, you know, being something like, um, um, I don't know, a violinist and a soccer player. Um, I can imagine what it would be for someone to be both, but not what it would be for them to be doing one thing and doing both. But, um, but that's, that, that's the thought um, after there. So, so I don't think it's very helpful to start by saying, what specifically do you mean by way of life? Let's get that clear first, independently of the issue of, of what are you trying to say. I think that's, um, if you'll, I don't mean to be impolite to the question, but I think that's precisely the wrong road yeah. to go down here. I mean, rather, what I would rather do is sort of get clear how a certain kind of conception of philosophizing, once we have a perspicuous view, will seem to be, it will seem to be almost um, a grammatical remark. A true, truism about it to notice that involves a conception of how to live. I would like the, I would like the way of life to enter at that point, and not as something that's independently defined into which one plugs one's conceptual philosophy. Yeah, I mean, it strikes me that if you look at somebody like Wittgenstein, who taught and who sometimes talk about philosophy as a work on on oneself and the way one sees things, uh, those kinds of remarks always come in come in a specific context. For example, in paragraphs 89 to 90 and forward in the investigations, um, where he's stressing that, well, and he comes to a point where he thinks that, oh, now I'm now again sublimating logic. So uh, the topic there is still, in a sense, logic, but it's it's his own demand on what logic must mean that he's combating. But that doesn't mean, and that's a clear case of, of where I think that uh, the self-reflective mode of philosophy is crucial but never distances itself from the object that it's still investigating. And I take it that nobody should take a deep interest in you know, what he felt when he thought about logic, but a lot of people would take an interest in what he thinks about logic. Right, though, so, I mean, what one felt, if that's just supposed to be some sensation that's accompanying one's philosophizing, that does seem a bit irrelevant, but, yeah. but, 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 um, but what kind of intellectual crossroads or plight of mind or puzzlement or perplexity one feels in the face of a certain problem and how a certain kind of accurate characterization of that can help bring to view what the difficulty is and why one gets stuck. Um, that's going to be something that one can share with someone yeah. 
Yeah. And it's not going to be a mere accompanying sensation. It's not going to be completely independent of the problem. I, I completely agree with what you said about those remarks of Wittgenstein. Maybe I'll put it in such a way that will uh, can't help but provoke Cora to want to say something <laughs> about this too. I mean, I mean, one, one, one thing that I must say has always... Um, a book which contains a great many such remarks, including the one you quoted, which is not to say that's where it first came up, um, is um, the book that was published in German under the title Vermischte Bemerkungen, and in English is Culture and Value. And I've had students come up to me and say, this is my favorite book of Wittgenstein's. Did he write more books like this? <laughs> and, I, I, I mean, of course, one misunderstanding is, you know, that it's a book he wrote, as rather than a collection of remarks that have been brought together. But, uh, but the deeper misunderstanding is one that, for all of my respect for him, I feel um, is present in the introductory preface to that work that von Richt wrote, where he um, says, well, what he's done is he's gathered all of these remarks of Wittgenstein on certain topics, um, <coughs> um, ethics, aesthetics, culture, music, I think are some of the ways he characterizes the topics that unite their mark. And we're kind of out of place, you know, where they were and brought them together for people who are interested in Wittgenstein's views on those topics. Um, and that does seem to me to involve, to invite an unfortunate understanding of the character of those remarks. I mean, it's not that I think in principle there's something wrong with such a book and we can't, we can't enjoy reading it, but I do think most of those remarks, where they initially occur, are not extraneous to the context and the way that invites one in seeing. And also the idea that, you know, what he's doing is lapsing into a thought about music or art or ethics um, is, is itself a misunderstanding of what he thought the unity of the connection was between the comparison he was trying to make or the reason he was stepping back and wanting to reflect for a moment on the kind of difficulties that philosophy involves that he saw as present and coming to the fore in his own struggle with the issue at that moment, the investigation. So I, I do agree that it's very important if one wants to understand the, the actual place of these remarks in Wittgenstein's own philosophizing, that one see, sees them as a piece with what he's doing and not, you know, sudden outbreaks of, um, you know, um, disciplinary change of topic. Yeah. Cora? No, I was surprised a bit that Jim thought I might want to <laughs> take a different view of... No, no, not at all. I just thought you'd be moved to speak. Oh, no, okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, what I moved to say is that on that issue, I would entirely agree that there's something really quite misleading in von Richt's approach to what he was doing with these remarks. And it leads to questions about what a philosopher is doing when he or she, as a philosopher, is listening to music or watching a, a movie or any of these things, in what ways is one's life as a human being the life of a mm. philosopher in those contexts? Um, this seems to me the question that's at issue here, and it's, it's how one brings oneself as a philosopher um, into that sort of context. That's, that's what yeah. one does, yeah. sometimes, at any rate. Let me change the topic. Well, I'll, maybe I'll just add to it. Of course, I mean, I, this is just a small note, but it's connected. I mean, often when I'm introduced as a speaker, it'll be something like, he works in this area and this area and this area. And by the way, he's, um, and this is very interesting, he's also interested in aesthetics. Or, or actually, he also has an interest in 
the philosophy of film or something like that. I, I particularly notice a certain region of my interest that will be mentioned last is particularly fascinating, peculiar. And, um, and, and the transition to it will come with the word also. Yeah. And and I don't say anything except thank you very much for that nice introduction. Um, but 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 the thought often occurs to the back of my my head is something like no I am not also interested. This part of my interest is completely of a piece with my other interests, and I know there are people that do aesthetics in ways that turn it into a hobby um, that is very much in the side of what they think of as at the heart of what they're doing in philosophy. But that's my interest in aesthetic. It would not be what it is if that's what it was. It's entirely um, concerned with how it illuminates the most fundamental issues of philosophy, be they what thought is or what a representation is or what a life is or what self-reflection is or what it is to see oneself from the outside or any one of a number of issues that seems to me fundamental to philosophy and reflection and art seems to me a place one can go to deepen one's sense of what those issues are. Yeah, yeah I would want to add that... Um, in reading anything, in seeing anything, one can be, one can suddenly recognize that one is challenged in some way by what one is seeing or responding to. And this may be in, of course, it may be while you're reading philosophy, you might get philosophically challenged. But while you are doing anything else, you can be philosophical, you can come on account of what you are attending to and the kind of attention that hopefully you're bringing to it, you can recognize that maybe you need to back off and rethink some of the things that you've been taking for granted as a philosopher. And this is there's no, as it were, way to insulate um, what you are attending to from the possibility mm. of some such um, challenge. And even there's a word that Wordsworth uses in this connection which is much stronger he speaks of the way in which um, in responding to certain being out in nature he recognizes an admonition and that's an extremely strong mm. kind of word but um, one can, can be taking in something that one is reading and then suddenly take it in as possibly constituting something that might be an admonition in the kinds of ways one's philosophy has been going along you know, merrily uh, it can be, you can be stopped yeah yeah. I remember when I was a very young person I mean I, mean, I, would, I don't even want to say young philosopher that would, <laughs> yeah. that would be an over description of this young person but a young person interested in philosophy and, but also going back and forth between the United States and Europe and visiting universities and reading books there and being struck by what a different thing philosophy was, especially then, in the 1970s, early 80s, um, on either side of the Atlantic. And um, there being something about analytic philosophy and its clarity and its insistence on a certain kind of accessibility and rigor that I really admired. And from the point of view of that, a certain amount of what happened to Europe struck me as, as very unresponsive and sort of almost like a battle between political ideologies that didn't talk to each other. And also the sense that it belonged to the philosopher just to have something to say about anything, whether they did or not. You know, what's, what does your philosophy have to say about what's happening in Iran now? And they would just have an incredible amount to say in the sense of they would produce a lot of words, even though one didn't feel that um, they had thought very hard about it before. <laughs> yeah. They spoke. And so... Um, 
these are all things with certain analytic prejudices I viewed with a certain um, leeriness in the European dispensation of philosophy. But what I loved about it and what thrilled me about it was, on the other hand, that there was nothing that was in principle not a philosophical topic. That, you know, from the distance of Europe, wondering what it is to be American or the question of whether jazz is a shallow or deep form of music or you name it, um, could be a topic that somebody would be moved to and provoked to think about with um, the tools in the background of a philosopher and seeing as part of what it was to do philosophy well to also be provoked to want to achieve clarity about that question. If they, if they, if they not just some interviewer asked them it, but if they themselves found it to be a deeper and important question. Whereas in the Anglo-Saxon dispensation of philosophy, I came from just one's willingness to want to write a paper on either of those or a great many topics would just be a sign of one's dilettantism and lack of seriousness, you know, yeah. as, a, as an analytic philosopher. And, and it sort of caused me to sort of fantasize about the possibility of the dispensation of philosophy, which aspired to some of the clarity and responsiveness of what I thought was best in the analytic tradition without any of its narrowness about what was an appropriate topic of reflection um, and have you know people that nonetheless were open to the idea that anything in principle um, was a topic of philosophical reflection if it could be shown to be and made to be so. Yeah. Um, this reminds me of um, an interview that you, Cora, did with uh, Silver Bronzer and If I remember correctly, you say that in, in that interview that I am an analytic philosopher, but... Yeah. Uh, and that seems to me to resonate pretty well with what Jim is talking about here. Now, but what's, what, what more specifically do you think is entailing that but? And what's the hesitation about? Well, I think before you get to the hesitation, um, <laughs> what I would agree with um, the way Jim structured his own remarks just now about coming with an appreciation of mm. what is importantly achieved by the kind of drive to clarity, whatever you want to call it, that is official as the official stance of analytic philosophy. That this this does have a good in it, which um, I think he was responding to and which mm. I would also want to respond to. Um, the but is partly connected with the kinds of things that, that Jim was talking about, um, the kind of, well, all sorts of things about contemporary analytic philosophy concern me very greatly about even things we've talked about already today, about the idea that to be an analytic philosopher is to be a participant in an enormous research program which goes on by people contributing their bits in accordance with their forms of specialization in philosophy and idea, which at least goes back to Russell in the, and Carnap as an ideal for um, a scientific conception of philosophy. And um, I'm loyal to analytic philosophy, but I don't want to be loyal to that <laughs> conception of analytic philosophy. And so the idea is to try to understand what one can make of an of the notion of being an analytic philosophy. I'm a philosopher. I'm not a continental philosopher. I, I, can't, I, I can't read and get into 
the kinds of things that non-analytic people who are officially, as it were, non-analytic philosophers, on the whole, I can't read. I mean, I read them, and but I'm not there. Mm-hmm. So I, I, what I'm looking for, what I'm trying to work on, what I'm trying to to think my way into, is some way of, um, to use a word that we've both used, inheriting um, things mm-hmm. from the analytic tradition, making sense of oneself as an analytic philosopher, but um, being able to respond critically to many of its features, some of which we've been emphasizing this morning, especially um, not only the one I just referred to, the sort of scientific model, but the whole kind of ideas of specialization, especially um, certain forms of professionalization um, as well. Um, these things are deform hmm. philosophical thinking, and one part of analytic philosophy is thinking about what philosophy is and what deforms it. So that's what I would want to say in response. Yeah. I, I, do, I think um, you know, analytic philosophy, it's important to bear in mind, like any really enormous and great tradition of philosophy, is far too capacious a thing to be um, identified with anything like a doctrine or, or a particular mm-hmm. set of philosophical views. So analytic philosophy itself is characterized by enormous and deep differences about you know what it should be, <laughs> which is you know internal to and part of what drove the tradition. And um, although um, I think it's much of it is characterized by a sort of insistence upon and a search for um, clarity on different conceptions of it, one enormous difference that runs throughout the tradition from very early on and throughout it, like a red thread, is. Um, the extent to which the forms of clarity it seeks to achieve and the methods by which it seems to seeks to deliver them are distinctive to philosophy, or whether um, they are to be found somewhere else and taken up by and you know maybe codified in some way um, or rigorized by philosophy, where this, the most popular candidate for somewhere else, though not the only one, was the natural sciences, um, sometimes mathematics. Um, and um, I started as a student in the natural sciences and physics and I love them and I still love much of what I learned there and I take back seat to no one in my aspiration to um, what is wonderful about natural science but I think it does philosophy no favors at all to sort of set it up as sort of um, some kind of poor cousin of the natural sciences that should try to imitate them when it could that leads to neither good natural science, nor philosophy. <laughs> I think part of what admiring um, natural science should involve, just like what admiring poetry should involve, is how philosophical writing is neither one of those things nor the other, which is not to denigrate either, nor philosophy, <laughs> but to understand you know, what, what, what it is for it to distinctively realize its own ends. And so, I mean, I do think that one can be a tremendous admirer of the analytic tradition and think it has wonderful resources for allowing us to um, think in the present about what philosophy's most promising possibilities are, while seeing it as a tradition which is rife with certain internal disagreements and also see ways of thinking that um, one thinks of as, as complete dead ends is also internal to that tradition. I don't think it's, imp- it's important to see there's no contradiction yeah. Yeah. in that yeah. at all. Cora. Yeah, I just want to add one thing that um, is peculiar to Ber- uh, Bernard Williams's response to um, the way the tradition has gone wrong. Um, which is the idea of writing an article in which you 
when you write, you should foresee every possible objection and shut it off. Yeah. Um, that that style of philosophical um, writing, which the and you know shut off all the opponents beforehand style, mm. is very characteristic of um, the allegiance of contemporary analytic philosophers. Um, analytic philosophers nowadays tend to think of that remark of Bernard Williams is as a kind of um, treason to the way in which we should operate. Mm. So I, I think that's a very, that issue is itself a very interesting one. Yeah. And it connects with what you were just talking about <laughs> earlier about drawing conclusions. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm, I want to fasten on, on, on the formulation gone wrong yeah. because you both have taken a deep interest in the history of analytic philosophy. And one way to think about history of philosophy is to think that there was a school of thought that had its youth and was a bit revolutionary, perhaps, then it became the dominant force, and then it died and people started writing their history. Now, that <laughs> seems to me to be a very odd way to describe your interest yeah. in the history of philosophy. So it seems more like to be um, focusing on aspects of it that were either neglected or misunderstood um, or not taken seriously, and that has led analytic philosophy in a very specific direction. So it seems to me that the, your interest in, in the history of analytic philosophy is a way of finding new paths inherent in the tradition that really hasn't been realized, but has a great value. Is that an adequate yeah. description? Well, I, don't, I think new paths is something I would want to hesitate about, okay. because it does seem to me that one of the things I tend to do as an analytic philosopher is find old paths that interest me and see where you get by going down those old paths. That this is that there are some um, paths that have that are present in analytic philosophy, and there are lots of paths. I and mean, this is the point that Jim has been making: it's a multiplicity of ways of, of approaching it. But um, there are paths in analytic philosophy and. For me, some of them would be associated with somebody like Iris Murdoch, or again, in, in related but different ways, with Elizabeth Anscombe. I've also mentioned Bernard Williams. Interestingly, these are all people who read greats, and their kinds of ways, I think, of responding philosophically have to do with their um, openness to the ways people in other languages think. And there, um, I think this comes out especially in some of, of Bernard Williams's late works, in which he is very much. Are there ways the Greeks thought that would be valuable for us? It's a very interesting kind of question. Yeah. It's a he writes as 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 a purely analytic philosopher in some ways, but to raise the question: Are there ways that the Greeks thought that should be taken seriously by us? Is to look for paths of thinking. That are there mm. in the tradition. Um, I'm looking at what Iris Murdoch does, other things she did, other things that Anscombe did. Um, what happens if you take these ideas and pursue them further? Maybe you'll find a dead end, but um, you won't know what options there are for analytic philosophy. Not by, I'm not suggesting finding new paths, except that um, they're perhaps newly. Um, their, their paths are there, but there's a lot of brush that's fallen on them, trees have fallen on these paths, and maybe you can go further down these paths if you see what happens if you push the brush aside. Yeah. Jim? I mean, I sort of feel a bit res 
I, I kind of like to um, respond to this question, at least to begin with, the way I did your very first question, <laughs> which is, um, again, just to thematize the idea, there's something peculiar about these philosophers that are so interested in history. Or here's a peculiar thing about you, or you and Cora, your interest in the history of analytic philosophy. Now I'd like to know why. Um, I mean, I agree sociologically, um, we, we're the oddballs, and so it requires a response. But um, I actually would like to advocate for a conception of philosophy to which the answer would be, how could I possibly not be? Um, rather than, um, here's something that requires special pleading. I, I do think, to take connected back immediately with our previous topic, that it is right about the history of physics that the way it flourishes involves a certain kind of historical forgetting. It's not an accident, I think, that physicists are terrible historians of physics, that when they read something that's not even that old in their discipline, they read back all of the assumptions about how one thinks about these things now and, you know, sees the past, gives the past credit figure credit where he sees them as anticipating the present and then just other, sees other things as bizarre, unmotivated mistakes, which he'll avert his gaze from um, if it's a hero he's reading. Um, but I, but I don't, I think it would just be a completely misplaced set of instructions to say to contemporary figures in research physics, oh, you're so provincial, you should read more <laughs> Aristotle and you should read, you know, Copernicus's De Revolutionis. Aside from the fact they don't have the resources to read these texts or even a paper, you know, from the early 20th century. Um, they don't read Einstein in the original. Um, you need to know all kinds of things they don't know. Um, um, it, it would not enrich or, I think, for the most part, um, enhance the work they did in cutting-edge physics. But I think it's enormous fantasy to think that contemporary analytic philosophy should take that as its model. I think philosophy's relation to its history is a completely different one. It's not an accident, um, though it seems to require extraordinary special explanation that the great figures in the history of philosophy, be they Aristotle or Plato or Descartes or Spinoza or um, um, Kant and Wittgenstein, remain our companions, and we continue to go back to them and argue with them and think about them in a way which would just be completely confused as a model for how physicists should proceed. So that needs understanding. And um, and what also needs... I mean, I think a physicist on the whole, if his subject is flourishing, can take it for granted that the problems with which he's wrestling are well posed. Um, and if he cannot solve them, this reflects in certain ways on his own ability as a researcher, but not on the entire dispensation of the subject. Whereas I think as a philosopher... It is incredibly benighted to assume that all the questions one receives from the journal literature are well posed. And now with just a bit of ingenuity and puzzle solving, you'll be the one that solves them, taking them on the model of subjects that belong to that kind of discipline. So then in philosophy, I do think one of our greatest enemies is intellectual provincialism, not being able to see where our problems come from, not understanding what their original motivations are, simply inheriting without any source of what really drives them, makes them important, what costs them, and what might be another way out of the problem than the ones um, that seem like the only options given the frame 
of the manner of posing and answering the question that one's inherited. And so I think as a philosopher, it behooves one to do whatever one can to overcome one's own intellectual provincialism. I just think, I know myself, I don't think it's an obligatory resource, but I know of no better resource than the history of philosophy. And I know of no more important immediate resource than the fairly recent history of one's own tradition of philosophy, which is what one's taking for granted. One should at least know how it is within that tradition certain people originally motivated to ask certain questions and why. And I think many analytic philosophers don't even know that much about the history of their own tradition. And I think that can be a source of great darkness in philosophy. Yeah. It's almost a bit ironic that, that one of the central thoughts that guided uh, at least some analytic philosophers was the struggle to become systematic and ahistorical. And they seem to have succeeded. <laughs> um, now, uh, you can, one can't partake in this discussion without thinking that you're both somewhat critical towards uh, how, to how academic philosophy is pursued today, that uh, a lot of um, education in, in philosophy um, is misguided because it, it really... Um, feeds into this idea of that there are certain sub-disciplines and you need to specialize and you need to become provincial and an expert in your so-called field. Um, so what would you say, um, how would a good philosophy education look like? What would a good philosophy education look like? Yeah. Cora? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, let me first say that I think one thing we haven't mentioned is that um, a shaping feature in contemporary philosophical education is preparing philosophers for the market. What is the philosopher going to look like when he is on the market? Yeah. Um, how is he, you know, what sort of resume is he going to have? What's, what's going to be in his CV? What's his AOS and so on and so forth. So um, as we think of the education of philosophy, the very concept of the education of a philosopher um, turns into the preparation of a product that's going to be marketed in a certain way at a certain in a market at a certain time, and this is explicit. You're going to be on the market. Um, Northwestern now, and they um, on, if you go to their web, website, they have the ways in which your purely philosophical side of your education proceeds, and the way the, pref <coughs> the professionalization preparation proceeds. You should have organized a conference by your third year, you should, you should, you should do all these professionalized things yeah. um, as part of being produced as a marketable philosopher at the end of five years, six years, or whatever. So certainly, um, what a good philosophical education is like, I mean, the difficulty here is operating within a context in which, you know, what is it we are actually educating people? What does it mean even to educate a philosopher mm. when the going concept, really the shaping concept, is the preparation of a product which is going to look like, you know, it's going to have an AOS, it's going to have a summary of a dissertation which goes here, and um, there's going to be um, some writing samples which will be um, takeable in a certain kind of way, writing samples that look as if they can be turned into publishable papers or are already publishable papers. That's what philosophical education, I would say, shouldn't be. But um, <laughs> this, is, this is what it is. And in the, 
context of what it is, it's very difficult to see what um, what you could do that would, would turn back. I mean, I happen to have been very lucky accidentally um, to have had a very much better mm. philosophical education in that I wanted to do, when I, when I got to Oxford, I wanted to do two years of philosophy, and I started off doing a second undergraduate degree, PPE, um, which meant I would have to do politics and economics as well. And I did politics and philosophy the first term. And as I was heading for economics, I didn't want to do any more economics. I'd done a lot. I'd been a graduate student of economics. And was there any way to do anything else? And why I was lucky to be um, moved into the BPhil program, which was designed by um, Ryle and his friend Mabbott um, to be a good way of preparing somebody to be both a philosopher and a teacher, given that, as they saw it, there was no such available good education mm. for philosophers at Oxford. Um, many, um, many young philosophers at that time fell into professional positions with nothing but an undergraduate degree. Right. Um, David Wiggins, whom I was talking about yesterday, and Williams, um, both of them had nothing besides an undergraduate degree. I mean, this was not at all unusual. Uh. So in that context, Ryle had, after his undergraduate degree, which was in, in greats, in um, ancient languages and literature and philosophy, um, and history and philosophy, um, what Ryle had done was take a year doing... PPE, a different Oxford undergraduate degree, and what Mabbott had done was do a research degree, which he felt was a very unsatisfactory kind of thing for a, an interest, a philosopher to do. You just got yourself into a research topic, you bur burrowed into it, and then at the end of it maybe you had a degree and you could go off and get a job somewhere, but this was no good. Mm -hmm. And so the two of them came up with a program which was not intended to be what it is to be filled now, is a pre-PhD program, a pre-DPhil program. Yeah. It wasn't in its origin that Ryle thought that the doctorate and in general research um, experience doing a big research project was a stupid kind <laughs> of way to educate somebody for life as a philosopher. And I think this comes out. You choose a topic for mm. your PhD because it can be a PhD topic. I mean, you've got, if you're doing a PhD, on the whole, you're not get, there are a lot of things you're not going to get away with. And yeah. your, your advisor will say, no, that's not going to work. Um, you, you choose a topic that's going to work as a PhD topic, regardless of whether it fits into the way you are developing your interest and your capacities as a philosopher. Mm. This is the form it has to take now. Yeah. And Ryle was upset about any... He saw this going on in America... And the Oxford Doctorate had, in fact, been invented after the First World War for Americans and possibly people from Canada or Australia or the European continent. Some of them would take the, the Oxford Doctorate as well. But it was not regarded as part of, the, part of a good philosophical education. Mm. So Ryle, came up, Ryle and Mabbott came up with the idea that um, having a program in which people had to study, got to study some more philosophy, and they chose, as it were, from a menu mm. there, um, they got to study more philosophy, 
And they got to write a short thesis, and they took examinations at the end of two years, and there would be a lot of classes for these people, and they would be able to talk with each other and interact with each other. People would give classes for them. This might work as a kind of philosophical education. It was an experiment. Yeah. But I was very lucky to be able to fall into it in my second term mm. in Oxford. So I had um, what was in many ways a good philosophical education. Um, I didn't have... In some ways, my philosophical education was much worse than Jim's, who had the wonderful resources of sort of bouncing around the Harvard department and talking to um, Hilary Putnam and Stanley Cavell and other graduate students and so on. Um, this is also a wonderful philosophical education. It, I mean, it, it, mm. it was headed for a dissertation. And in fact, when Hilary Putnam turned up in the graduate program at Harvard. After one semester, he knew he was heading for an examination that he was scared of, some kind of Harvard um, examination you had to take in your second semester. So he went to, he got, he got out and went to UCLA and wrote a dissertation under Reichenbach, which worked for him. <laughs> but um, he didn't have the kind of bouncing around Harvard for more than the one, or I don't know whether it was one in a bit of a semester before he dropped out, but um, I think being able to hang out with mm. bunches of philosophers is something that Jim had one version of. I had a different version of it. Yeah. And I think being able to hang out with people who are thinking about philosophy mm. is itself extremely important. And I think one of the things about um, Harvard as it was, not as it is, but Harvard as it was was that there was a lot of talk among students, again, with some of the members of the faculty, that was not narrowly specialized. Mm. As I understand Emerson Hall, as it was back then, it had the capacity to shape a philosophical education in ways that pressures towards specialization and research programs mm. and being put together with people who share a research program. That does away with some of the things that were good in his education and also in a different way in mine. So mm. I don't know. That's the beginning of, an, of, of a discussion. I mean, I think what I had was a program which ended up in exams. And if you failed the exams, you failed. And that was that. You couldn't retake them. And people were right. scared out of their wits. Everybody thought they were going to fail. Um, Dan Dennett didn't do a B-fail partly because he was scared. Um, I think Isaacson... What's his name? Um, yeah, he didn't take the. He didn't take. People were scared of the beetle, mm. and it was terrifying. But I don't think it's an ideal feature of a philosophical education that you should be terrified out of your wits. Um, <laughs> anyway, that's my views about yes. philosophical education. That I was lucky, and luckily I passed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Jim, do you want to add anything? Well, going. I'd like to just go all the way back to your initial question um, and say something general. And then something more particular and personal about it. I mean, the form of your question was something like, what do you think is the right way to set up a graduate program? What should the form of philosophical education be? And I mean, I guess the first thing I want to say is, you know, what I hope and pray, though, I mean, I think I'm losing <laughs> out in my hope and prayer here. But what I hope and pray is that the world never comes to a complete consensus about what the answer to that question is. 
comes up with a blueprint and just realizes it everywhere, regardless of what the blueprint is. Um, so, I mean, there's a sense, if, if the premise of the question is that um, there is one thing, which is this, and we should get clear what it is, and then we should do it, I think I'm already a bit resistant to the program. I think philosophy thrives on there being diversities of kinds of philosophers and people that can challenge how you think about philosophy by philosophizing in a very different way. Um, whatever, you know, um, Plato, Socrates, and Kant had in common, they didn't think like very many other people <laughs> around them. And that's certainly not accidentally related to part of our sense of why they're extraordinary um, and important um, and precious. So, um, so, I mean, when I look at graduate programs, for instance, just in North America, and there's some distinctive program which isn't particularly perhaps what I want to be at or I think is the best friend, but it's just distinctive in some way. And then I see it sort of getting leveled and, and sort of adopting various practices that just makes it look more and more like the typical North American um, graduate program philosophy. I feel sad, you know, in ways that's not completely unrelated to how I feel sad when I find that some state forest, which is a, natural sanctuary and habitat for the spotted owl or something has suddenly been open to the logging industry and that species is threatened and I, I put it that way because I think it's quite clear there's something ill posed about this question what in general do you think the shape of a good natural habitat for an important and precious species be the questions asked at a level of generality that's clearly empty um, you know what will be a good graduate program for eliciting certain kinds of philosophical forms of virtue may be different from others and to some extent incompatible, which is why we want, I think, more than one form of philosophical education in the world. That's the general thought. The more specific thought then is, you know, I have thought a lot about in the departments I've been in how I want to configure and be active in shaping a um, program of graduate study and um, credentialization of the um, budding, you know, contributor to our so-called profession of philosophy. But I think, if I'm honest about it, I have done it in ways that are, um, you know, reacting to the age. I mean, I don't think there's some timeless question here um, about how this should be done. Um, so I, I just see no point in working really hard to set up a program that's most like what certain people think a top program is right, educating them exactly the way they do there, having them read exactly the same journal articles, writing articles exactly like those other articles that lots of other people are writing. What's the point of that? I mean, that just strikes me, you know, whatever that was, and I haven't filled it in, um, there's already plenty of it. <laughs> we don't particularly need some more. So, I mean, I have sort of looked around and thought, what does philosophy need? Um, what would be good? What would I be proud of? What can be exciting? What can point a path forward? What can make um, this seem like a place where I really feel like I'm contributing in an important way? And so under the present dispensation of you know, Anglophone philosophy, that's meant a, problem, a, a program which precisely pushes against some of the forms of specialization we were talking about. But I think part of the reason I think that's so important is because of what's going on elsewhere. So it's meant a department where... Um, it wasn't riven by some of the ideological or disciplinary divides that tend to split philosophy in the present. And I think the three largest versions of those are history of philosophy versus 
certain kinds of systematic contemporary forms of inquiry, continental versus analytic, and practical versus theoretical. So my picture of um, a department that's a healthy antidote to the age <laughs> is one in which um, it is not riven by any of those divides, by which I don't mean it just has some of each, but I mean that philosophy is done in such a way that these are not as experienced as divides. And if you wanted to draw battle lines that go through the souls of the faculty and the students. And so they present just a very different model of how these things can hang together. Now, pursuing such a department, I also do so in the full knowledge of the truth of everything that Cora said before, which is that I'm making no contribution at all to the actuality of philosophy's present or future if my students don't get jobs, if they just seem to be really weird people that are doing really weird stuff that does not meet the needs of what anybody who's a potential employer philosophy is looking for. So I do think it's very important to also have them be, as they gradually focus in an area of specialization, hopefully with a wider breadth and literacy in these ways I've just indicated, if they have also you know considerable literacy in what the present of the discipline is, and they learn to speak to that audience, and not just to other people that are educated in the program they come from. I think that is another source of, 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 of the problems with philosophy today, is that philosophers are taught and educated to only speak to people who are educated just as they are. So um, I do also work hard to, as they focus on what they want their main topic to be, urge them, but not on the first day of their graduate education. But eventually, to then also require a tremendous competence, literacy, and a capacity and interest in addressing people that don't think the way they do. I mean, sometimes I find myself putting this to my students as something like, yes, I understand this is what you want to do, and these are your motivations to the subject, and I think that's wonderful. But now you need to learn to put a tuxedo on over your Harlequin costume, you know, get the tie straight, you know, get the cufflinks right, have your white shirt perfectly pressed, and look presentable for the party. And the irony I find is that it's not that hard to educate the students to do that. It's not such a big deal. It doesn't need to be the first thing it, it, they learn. It does not have to control their horizons and completely collapse the shape of their philosophical soul. Just like learning to be properly dressed for a wedding it's something you can teach people to do without, you know, having them exchange their soul for 30 pieces of gold. I think teaching a good graduate student at the end of a rich and diverse, you know, um, program of graduate study, how to make them presentable for a certain kind of interview, it's harder than learning how to get properly dressed for a wedding, though, frankly... I've learned the one and not the other, I think, so I don't <laughs> know if I should be saying that. Um, but um, th these are things you can teach people. And, and the further paradox I found, I just thought I would mention this, just bring how complicated the times are. You know, people are always surprised how many good jobs my students have or jobs out of our, my graduate program has. And they really, you know, I mean, to put it in the sort of contemporary parlance, your placement record is far beyond the rank of your department. It's quite perplexing or something. Um, but I think the reason for that actually is um, if you have a graduate student who's found their own voice and isn't just orbiting around one of their thesis advisors and has a certain kind of broader philosophical competence and literacy, so while being very competent to feel can appeal to a larger common denominator of taste, 
of a broader department and is able to teach things that they didn't expect the person to be able to teach if that's their specialization and just is able to talk to many different peoples and seem interesting and have something to say that sort of strikes people as um, a breath of fresh air. And sometimes that just seems much more interesting than having one more job interviewee who seems a lot like all the others. So though I push for such a department and, and, and push for such forms of graduate education and encourage my students to come out a certain kind of way, um, without really a particular mercenary or prudential agenda yeah. in it. I mean, I just wanted them to get a job. That was yeah. the extent to which my a sense of how to educate them was controlled by the practical. Um, in retrospect, um, looking back over the last 30 years, um, somewhat shaking my head in surprise, I've, I've kind of noticed that, in fact, perhaps it even turns out to be quite prudential in that um, in f- just trying to pick the most popular topic and write about it the way everybody else does and then, uh, and, you know, and then only be an apt applicant for jobs, which are the jobs for which the largest number of other people are also applying because that's what they all do and so forth might not even turn out to be, you know, the smartest way to succeed on the philosophy job market. But but so um, so though I have pursued my conception of what a good graduate education is, um, mostly out of a sense of what do I owe philosophy, um, not how to sort of, you know, cash in on a certain kind of business. Um, in retrospect, I've, I've come to think that some of, of what looks perverse about the forms of graduate um, education and the models of diversity and breadth of literacy, and therefore somewhat longer length of study also that goes with such a program might actually even turn out to be a good marketing model. <laughs> Cora, did you have a final yeah, comment? I did want to have a, one comment about the idea that there's no, that it, you know, there, a variety of departments is a good thing. I think there's one feature that a good department has to have, which is that the faculty members have to be um, interested in letting the students develop to be the kinds of philosophers that in some sense they want to be. There are limits. You can't have everybody being the kind of philosopher they want to be or they, you, know, you, you won't really get much done as a philosophy department. But my example here would be Jerry Cohen turning up as having finished a BA in, um, in Canada and turning up at Oxford to do a BPhil, and the BPhil at that time, this is a couple of years after I did it, the BPhil required that you choose as one of the exams, you had to have an exam on your chosen authority. It could be Aristotle, it could be Plato, it could be the empiricists, it could be the rationalists, it could be Kant. Um, but Jerry Cohen told um, Isaiah Berlin, who was his immediate supervisor on what he was doing, that he wanted his authority to be Marx. <laughs> and you could do Marx in the politics faculty there. They had a degree where you could do Marx. And so Berlin set it up so that Jerry Cohen could do, as his BPhil authority, Marx. Mm. And I think that this was a wonderful thing, and it's a model of how you try to adjust the education you already have in place. Somebody comes and he doesn't really quite fit. But do your faculty really want to help 
the student who may be, I, mean, I think this can be taken too far, you may get, as it were, people who want to do something in philosophy, and you can see this really isn't going to work. Mm. But being able to go a good way to adapting the program to the interests of the interests and ideas of the individual graduate student, to be able to do that well, I mean, I think that's an, an, an important um, feature of every good graduate department. It's not going to be a good graduate department if it isn't willing, if it doesn't have most people interested in trying to think their way into making things possible for the graduate students that might not be quite possible according to the rules. Yeah. And just a brief thing to mention is one side effect of trying to run a graduate program in the way that Cora just said is that um, if you have graduate students for whom you're working hard to make it possible for them to follow their own original motivations to philosophy and what they think is most important, even though it's not part of the standing curriculum of your department right now, is that you wind up working with students from whom you learn a lot and teach you a lot and your own philosophical horizons are over time, if this is your conception of what it is to play your role as a graduate advisor, your own philosophical horizons are tremendously broadened. And that's that's something that I look back on and I think how much of what I now care about and interest in philosophy I owe to the fact that I had this student or that student who, to whom I was trying to help them find a way to yeah. um, follow up that interest in graduate school at that moment in that program. I mean, it can be a problem. I mean... Uh, when I was at Pittsburgh, uh, the University of Pittsburgh, I did have the feeling at a certain point that anybody who wanted to do anything that other people in the department didn't do, they would just say, go to Kona. Oh, go talk to Kona. You know? <laughs> no matter if they're interested in Neoplatonism or Arlie Bagson, it would just be, oh, well, and, and that can be a problem you know, at some point. Um, it's, so you need other colleagues who are willing to sort of take up the burden of, of, of bending over backwards in that way too, so that it doesn't all fall on your shoulders. But yeah, we yeah. also have we only have Wittgenstein because people at Cambridge were willing to hear the rules. Here's Wittgenstein. Now it's going to be difficult, but we're going to get him through what whatever needs to be done here. Yeah, we're running out of time. It seems like we could continue forever, but. Um... We need to end at some point, and this might be a good one. Uh, I want to thank you both for a stimulating and rewarding discussion. Thank you. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. <laughs>